it doesn't matter how much ACOS you took. If the patient rolls in without warning and that's enough to set you off in a state of sympathetic stimulation. The knowledge has fled your head. You're in the gray. Flailing rapid activity never saved lives. Everything is two stages. There's the temporizing stage, and then there's the definitive action stage. That is the voice of today's guest, Dr. Scott Weingart. And you are listening to the Stimulus Podcast. And of course, no, it is not the Stimulus Podcast. It is the MCRIT Podcast. But my buddy, Rob Orman, was kind enough to let me repost an episode we did hit on his Stimulus Podcast. And I think you're really going to like it. It's a Mind of the Resuscitationist episode. Hello, my friends. How you doing? Rob Orman here. Such a special guest. Emergency intensivist, purveyor of the MCRIT podcast, purveyor of On Deeper Reflection, my coaching partner and dear friend, Dr. Scott Weingart. Wow, Rob. It's like a warm welcome to come home. I, I'm so happy to be back on the Stimulus podcast. I'm so happy to be podcasting with you. It's an absolute pleasure. Before we jump into the meat and potatoes or the... I know the tofu and quinoa, what would be the vegan sets? I don't know, that? but I don't want to eat it. That's feeling. <laughs> we have two events coming up in the first half of 2024. Our Flame Proof Cohort 2 begins February 1st, 2024. Registration. Well, if you listen to this before February 1st, 2024, registration is open. We are in the waning days of cohort one. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny when we were advertising this the first time around, we, we had no idea whether it was going to be good or not. We we thought it would. We worked our asses off to make a curriculum and, and conglomerate all of these ideas. But now we know it's amazing. We have the testimonials of the people going through it. So now it is not an untested beta cohort. This is the real thing now. We, we have it all down. We've rounded off all of those hard edges. So now you're getting the best of us. All right, if you want to check that out, it's flameproofcourse.com, flameproofcourse.com. It's our anti-burnout course. We will teach you how to continue to enjoy your career and avoid or fix burnout. So flameproofcourse.com. And in person, going to be in person May 1st through 3rd in Bend, Oregon. You'll be there. I'll be there. We have an incredible crew of instructors. Actually, we just added a new instructor today, the day of this recording. I'm super stoked. Jeff, to go and look at the instructor list. You guys will see her. And oh yeah, she's going to slay it. Awake and aware. If you want to see that live course, which is going to be all things philosophy, burnout, happiness, eudaimonia, joy, meditation, sleep, performance improvement, all sorts of crazy stuff. We did this in Sedona. It was amazing. And now we are doing it in Bend. If you want more information about that, go to awakeandawarebend.com. But honestly, you're not going to remember that. So just go to the MCRIT notes for this episode or the Stimulus Podcast. There's also coupons there for Stimulus or MCRIT listeners. So go check it out. Come to the conference. I'm going to be there along with Rob and a bunch of our buddies. And it's going to be amazing. All right. Oh, wow. Enough advertisements. You probably hate me right now. I'm sorry. These two things are really, really good. That's the only reason I mentioned them. Let's get right into the show. Just in time resus patient dropped on your doorstep and you have no warning. 
and the mental states that will go into optimal performance in those situations. Go. All right. To the matter at hand. Something that has come up several times in coaching sessions is clients and the, these have all been emergency docs. I have not had any critical care docs talk about this, although I'm sure that there are analogous situations. But it's emergency docs feeling like they are not measuring up clinically. And it's a very specific situation. And that is the zero warning critical patient. So floppy baby, trauma arrest, cardiac arrest, severe respiratory distress. It's a drop off. And when this happens, there's this aspect of ectopic emergency medicine. Because when EMS brings in a patient, that patient is packaged. There's a natural flow of what happens. There's a map with a starting point. You have your clear starting point. I think even a one-minute warning or a 30-second warning, you're still prepared to a certain degree. The difference between 30 seconds and sudden zero unexpected warning drop-off in the ambulance bay or cardiac arrest and triage, entirely different animal. And there is this certain freeze that can happen. Uh, when you told me this was the topic you wanted to speak about, I was super excited because this is something I spent so much time thinking about, not just from a clinical level, but really from a philosophical level, because that's really what this comes down to is a question of mindset. And in some ways, the beauty of emergency medicine is the reason people fail at these just-in-time critical care scenarios. Emergency medicine is anything, anywhere, anytime. And what that has been translated to in most of the specialty is we'll take whatever you give us, however you give it to us, and we'll deal with it. We will take whatever comes in and we'll work with it. That is the mindset. The most salient example of this in my career was when I was a second year resident. I was intubating a patient just like I always did at that stage in my career. And EMS would flop them on the stretcher. They'd be in respiratory arrest and the stretcher would be down in my groin. And we'd just rustle through and grab the first blade that came to hand in the intubation box. And we'd try to intubate. And then one of the days I just couldn't do it. And my attending tried, and this was at an academic place where the attendings wore ties. So there was zero chance he was going to get it when I didn't. And so now, you know, we're in a failed airway situation here. And so what do you do at an academic medical center where you don't have aggressive recess? You bag the patient, you call for anesthesia. And I, I, I'm like, oh, I guess that's what we do here. And anesthesia came down, not an anesthesia attending, mind you, a second year anesthesia resident, someone at the same level as I was. And she came down and the patient sat was in their 80s. And this is a bad situation, not of her making. And what did she do? Did she get in there and intubate? Hell friggin' no. She said, keep bagging. And she had us raise up the bed and she went to the blanket machine and got a bunch of blankets and stuck it under the patient's head. And then she got all her equipment laid out the way she wanted in front of her. And then she said, stop bagging. And she intubated the patient on the first try. And I looked at that and I said, never again. It was a complete paradigm change from what I had been taught up until that moment, because I had the EM mindset. And the EM mindset is you take it how you're given and you work with it. Obviously, that mindset doesn't apply to this individual circumstance. But I think if we 
delve deep into the rationale for why people fail in these just-in-time situations, it's because they're still in the mode of take what you're given and work with it. No, do not take what you're given and work with it. What you need to do is optimize prior to arrival and optimize during arrival such that you are working with the best possible circumstances at any given point in time. So that's the overarching philosophical idea I want you to get across is don't take what you're given just because that is the paradigm of emergency medicine. I want to back up a few steps because even if you're prepared, you can still freeze. It's unexpected. It's not even just in time. It's no time. And when it's showtime at no time and you're frozen, nothing is going to happen. And you wrote what I would say is probably the seminal or one of the seminal articles on unfreezing in these situations, the psychological skills to improve emergency care providers' performance under stress. So first, let's unfreeze because so often, and this is what 100% of the time when I'm working through creating constructs with clients on this, the first thing that they say is, it's not even so much a freeze, it's just blank, white noise. And that's a well-known stress response and it's not untoward to experience that, but it is a failure mode. And this is what I want you to understand. And Rob, in two seconds, I will happily talk about the psychological skills for just-in-time anxiety management. But if it happens, and I don't blame the people, it's just lack of adequate training for what we should be doing. The training wasn't to task. But if you freeze, then it was a failure of preparation. Because if the environment and your mind are where they should be, you won't freeze next time. And we'll talk about that. But let's talk about the situation where you do freeze. Okay, so we have these just-in-time stress response mechanisms. Uh, Mike Loria, my buddy and I, wrote up this up, and I, I've since thought about it a lot, even since that paper, and I've made some changes. But we gave you four skills or activities that could lower your stress response to the point where your brain will come back online. You know, that gray, that I got nothing here. What the hell am I supposed to do? Is because you've been delinked from all of the training you've done. Stress has actually knocked off your standard operating principles. And you, you just like in a freeze mode, because we know what happens with extreme stress. It's fight, flight, or freeze, right? You can't run away. So that's gone. You've lost flight as an option. And there's, there's no one to fight here. So you're always going to just wind up at freeze now, some of the trauma surgeons decide to go to fight and we see how that works out. Not a good look. So freeze is the one to go for, but you got to get out of it. You got to take yourself out of freeze. So four things, breathe, talk, see, focus. These are the four. The acronym for it is beat the stress fool. And you got to imagine Mr. T yelling in your ear when you're in this gray, beat the stress fool. That's as good as a Mr. T as you could do. I'm sorry, Rob. So we'll go through it one by one. Breathe. Now we know breathing is the best possible connection you have to your autonomic nervous system. You're in a mode of incredible sympathetic surge here. You got to get out of it. You can't think when your heart rate's 160. It doesn't work out. Uh, when it's stress mediated, you know, if your heart rate's 160 from running, you're great. Your brain's working better than ever. If your heart rate's 160 from a stress response, you're not thinking so well. So breathing. We used to talk about breathing the box. Inhale four, hold four, exhale four, hold four. Repeat as needed. There's better ways. If you can, actually time yourself, but even if you can't, just in general, double your exhalation time from your inhalation time. So for inhalation time, you do for three seconds, exhale for six. Or if you can inhale, you manage to inhale for four seconds, 
exhale for eight and just count them off. And you're going to have to do pursed lips in order to do those exhalations. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to get past the second. Do that two or three rounds. All of a sudden, your parasympathetic start kicking in. Anything that has a longer exhalation than inhalation time is parasympathetic breathing. So that's the breathe. Then talk, self-talk. Incredibly powerful. Just say, you got this. You trained for this. You're going to be fine. If you take a few breaths, you're going to be totally okay, even though now you're frozen. And all of a sudden, that's going to lower your stress response. Even better if you say it in the third person. Rob trained his ass off for this. If he just calms down for two seconds, he'll remember everything he needs to. This is going to be absolutely fine. That's good self-talk. You have to do a difficult stand procedure that's not standard. You have to open up someone's chest. I know I haven't done this for a while, but I trained for this and I remember, and it's not that tough. Okay, well, that's going to make you feel better. Your parasympathetic is going to kick in. You're going to be more relaxed, capable of action. C, mental rehearsal, visual rehearsal. If you have to do something difficult, a patient just came in, was it worth the three seconds? Yeah, it's worth the three seconds to just close your eyes and say, all right, what are the steps I'm actually going to do to stabilize this patient in the next minute? All right, those three seconds are worthwhile. Takes a little bit of time away from the patient, adds marked potency to your ability to act on them. So this is the slowest, smooth, smoothest, fast. Slowing down now for three seconds can have enormous benefits for the next five minutes. And then a focus word. And this really requires building beforehand. But if you have built something that every time you're in an activity that puts you in flow state or a calm or a meditative state, you add a word at the end of it, then your brain will start associating that word with that state and you can use it as a calming mechanism. For me, it's the word smooth. And I've built that word over years. Every time I'm going to do a procedure, I say smooth. Every time I go into a difficult resuscitation, I say smooth. And it's had the cognitive building around that word such that it actually activates mental states, operant conditioning. Breathe, talk, see, mental rehearsal, and then focus with the trigger word. Exactly. How long ought that take? Because we're talking about a critical patient where seconds usually don't count, but seconds do count here. So to unfreeze the mind. First of all, seconds don't. And this is the thing people don't understand. This is why the misunderstandings there is, is flailing rapid activity never saved lives. Everything is two stages. There's the temporizing stage, and then there's the definitive action stage. And the temporizing should happen right away, but it doesn't need to be you. So what's temporizing in a patient who comes in? Let's say they're in cardiac arrest. Start bagging the patient, start compressions, please. Now they're temporized. Yes, you have other tasks that have to be done, but you have time before they need to be done. You certainly have 20 seconds if you need them to gather yourself, to gather equipment, to uh, reestablish order in the room. So temporize happens immediately, should be reflexive. Mike and I also built on MCRIT the idea of the emergency action drill. These are reflexive actions that you have built by practice such that you don't need your actual type two, system two brain in any way to function in order to do them. So it happens automatically. An instant, instance of an emergency action drill. Patient comes in with ST elevation MI. Patient goes unconscious. Now, if you're thinking, oh my God, that's a perfect just-in-time situation. Patient's now in cardiac arrest after a STEMI. Oh my God, what am I going to do? You go gray, you have to do all this. No, that, that's going to be dangerous. Yeah, you don't. that patient doesn't have the 20 seconds. If you built the emergency action drill for that patient, anytime a STEMI goes unconscious, hook up the defibrillator because you're surely going to find BFib, BTAC, and shock the patient. That's it. That's the emergency action drill. You got to build that in before the patient comes in. But that EAD, never have to think about it again. Never have to think about it again. If you've practiced that 20 times, you just say to yourself, oh, 
What am I going to do? Patient in STEMI just went into cardiac arrest. Oh, I'm going to put on the pads and shock. Put on the pads and shock. Then you could be gray and still act. Gray, but still act. You have the time. It's temporizing. It's done. Now definitive action comes afterwards. Same thing. Patient, you look up blood pressure, 50 over 30. If you haven't trained with an emergency action drill, you're going to have to flail around. Oh my God, do they need blood? Do they need fluids? Do they need pressors? What the? What do they do? What do I do? No, the emergency action drill for any patient you look up and they are at a critical blood pressure is crack code cart, give half a cc of cardiac epinephrine. That's it. That's the emergency action drill. You don't have to think about it. I don't care if they're bleeding. I don't care if it's sepsis. It doesn't matter. 50 over 30 equals crack code cart, half cc cardiac epi. And you build that emergency action drill in. All of a sudden now, you could act and be in the gray, have time to bring yourself out of it back to full functioning thinking without having to think about what to do because you can't think about what to do because you're in the gray. So emergency action drills are the way to deal with that. So temporizing is separate from definitive action. You said a few things in there that I think are critical to highlight. When you have gone through whatever it is you do, there's beat the stressful or however it is that you just give yourself a moment to take your tachometer down from the red line into just a hair underneath the red line and then action because taking steps of action there's time yes time will eventually you will get out of the gray you will get out of the white noise but taking action accelerates that process yeah we call this get off the spot i don't care what the action is you can't freeze you have to do something. And the perturbation of the chaos that that action causes, whether it helps or not, will give further stimulus to let your brain say, what do I do next? So you're absolutely right, Robin. You put your finger on something absolutely key is get off the X, get off the spot, key move, because to not act is to cause no change in the situation that has led you to gray. So Acting in any way, even if it's wrong, will give you far more now inputs to be able to figure out what the hell to do next. You were also talking about how to train your trigger word. And you're, so yours is smooth. This is just like practicing your most complicated intubation technique, not a crike, on somebody with a normal airway a hundred times or, or how whatever sort of deliberate practice you do because you fall back to the level of your training. And so... I love that you got very specific with that on every time I do a procedure, I start it with smooth. What is that? Uh, it's operant conditioning. Operant conditioning. Thank you. Yeah, it's exactly right. And look, I'm talking about using it, but you could also train it that way. If you don't want to have a meditative practice at home that, and train your word, you could train it at work. Every time you do a procedure well, every time there was a flow and you're like, wow, that was slick, then use your word. And link your word to that. And now you'll be able to actually build it at work without having to bring it home with you. Let's dig into the action, the emergency action drill. And you were uh, not alluding to this, you were talking about this, grabbing onto the idea that you have to have and have to be everything, everywhere, all at once. And it's overwhelming. And that's where the freeze comes in. So what's your bold face? I think the bold face is even too big for that because this comes before the bold face. Like the bold face is a set of distinct actions that are critical for a number of different scenarios. This is bigger than that. It really just comes down to ABC. This is even transcends the bold face. This is like the ultra bold face. This is like the bold italic in 58 
point font. This is, I just need to cover these patients' ABCs. And then I can figure out how to calm down enough to start figuring out the bold face. That's how intrinsically reflexive these acts need to be. It's just like BVM with end title CO2. If I have a waveform, I'm done with that A. Now I have all the time in the world to get out of that gray. If I can't get a waveform with a BVM, then I need to put down a superglottic airway while I'm still in the gray. And once I have a waveform and tidal CO2 with the superglottic airway, then now I could say, hey, hold this here and bag through it and calm down and reassess and uh, reinsert myself into the situation. Circulation, you got to get access. Got to get access. Nurses struggling with the IV, IO. You fail IO, you need to be able to do a crash central line in less than 60 seconds. That's just a skill you have to build. But then you have to, once you build that skill, now you need to insert it into your emergency action drill. Your emergency action drill is, okay, nurses could fool around with the IV for 60 seconds. I'm going for an IO if they can't get in 60 seconds. And then I'm going to put a crash central line in. And that's it. And then emergency action drill for hypotension kicks in. If they're hypotensive, well, I'll give them a half a cc of epinephrine. Okay. One way or another, ABC is established. I am laughing because Melissa and I were talking about this recording last night and I was telling her what we we're going to do. She said, wait, isn't that why you have ACLS? <laughs> that what it was designed for to say? I said, oh no, we're getting down to the real micro micro steps. And she said, no, ACLS fails because ACLS is strategic. ACLS is the strategy. And for that, it's good. AC, ACLS is not logistical. And that's why so many codes go to crap is it's all well and good to know, oh, okay, how many joules of defib current am I going to use? But that doesn't help you with the patients in a pool of their own vomit and proned because you walked into the ICU on an ARDS patient. It's a different level of complexity and a different realm of thought. And so what we're talking about is the knowledge has fled your head. You're in the gray. It doesn't matter how much ACLS you took. If the patient rolls in without warning, and that's enough to set you off in a state of sympathetic stimulation. That's what we're talking about, is how to perform when your higher cognitive functions haven't kicked online yet. I want to get into how to craft your own emergency action drills. So there's all these frameworks that you can build for thinky time. Now, how am I going to manage right lower quadrant pain in pregnancy? What am I going to do with AFib, RVR, with a soft pressure? These are all thinky time patients where you get to, you can get very complex. There's all of this literature and it's amazing. And you must do this because if you don't do that, you will have no bandwidth during your shift. And these no time, just in time, zero warning patients are a halo event, just like a halo procedure. These don't happen every day. These happen maybe once a month, once every couple months in most of the departments that I worked in. Them rolling in a cardiac arrest may be a high acuity, low opportunity event. But the reason you have this incredible cognitive freeze is because your ED and your mind hasn't been prepared for all the other resuscitations you've done over the past three months that have been just strewn with chaos and you've been willing to accept that. That is what builds these being so cognitively difficult is that your system is failed. And so sure, we could talk about how to deal with a system that's failed, but we should also at some point, Rob, talk about how to make the system functional such that you don't freeze at all. 
when these patients come in. And so I don't know which order you want to do those in, but I'd like to talk about both. Let's get to that afterwards, because I want to get into how would one build their own emergency action drill? And I want to frame this from the perspective of the solo clinician, because I think that when you start there, then you can scale it to however big your team is. And years ago, I'm not sure if you remember this, we did this with a trauma arrest case, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. And it was a case of a motorcyclist who had been dragged under a car for a few hundred yards. It happened right in front of the hospital. It was zero warning, just in time. And I felt like my shoelaces were tied together. I'm thinking, where do I even start with this? Every other trauma arrest I had ever had, I had warning. I said, okay, here's the steps I'm going to take. I prepared my team. This was nothing. And we spent a long time discussing the first probably 60 seconds of that case. It did happen again, not that long after, and I was way better prepared and it went fine. And after that, I got to thinking, how do I create my, I didn't call them emergency action drills, but how do I create my zero warning frameworks? And I want to get into how you would do the process. For me, visualization, the key. When this comes in, what do I really need to do? What do I really need to know, if anything? Is it enough that it's a trauma arrest and that's enough? It's a floppy baby. I don't need any more information. Do I need anything? And what are the actual crucial actions that need to happen? Yeah, no, I love that. This mental simulation should be done. Now, for some people, you could just do it at home. I don't advocate that for most because Rob, I could tell you the location of every single item in our resource rooms down to which part of the draw they actually sit in. So I could sit at home and mentally simulate most of these cases, but most people don't have that fingertip access because they didn't build the stocking systems themselves. So they're not going to. And in most places, what's there one day is not going to be there the week after. I advocate for most people, you, you get some downtime during a shift. If you're in a rural place where you know that actually exists, if you're in an urban environment, it's never going to happen. So maybe you just go in 20 minutes before your shift and you go into your recess room and you just simulate one of these and you've put some good ones in there. Patient rolls in with a blood pressure 50 or 30 from blunt trauma. Okay, great. Patient comes in with a knife stabbed into their chest. Great. Patient comes in, no warning, cardiac arrest. Great. Patient comes in, no warning, being bagged by EMS, and they just throw them on your stretcher. Okay, let's run through these in the recess room and say, how am I going to deal with this such that I can now get to the point where they're temporized enough that my brain can come back online and start thinking about definitive actions? Breaking that down even further, here, here's exactly how I, I would go about it. I actually needed to do it at home to just have the mental space because if I was on shift, I always had this gravitational pull to do something, which we'll talk about in a future podcast. So I'd visualize it at home and it gave me the time to listen to podcasts, to research, to see if there are other frameworks out there. You were talking before about, okay, you've got this patient who's hypotensive, they look peri-arrest, open crash cart, give a half CC of crash cart epi, and then you can think. That's not something that would be obvious that here's steps. So finding those things, visualizing, talking to people, seeing how they might do it. And then I would write it down. I needed to have a wireframe because I needed to see it 
that how I did it was I needed to see it in my mind. Then I would go into the room with my wireframe and say, where is the code card? Do they have the lock on it? What happens to the lock? Is this, where are all of these things? And that was the ritual before every shift was to go into the code room and then think through one of these things. It's protracted, but that's what worked for me. No, I think that's perfect, but it's not protract. Look, the thinking you did at home, this musing, I'm not sure how long it took, but I can't imagine it was any enormous investment in time. And the mental simulation on shift where you just go in and you're like, okay, well, how would this work in real life? What would I actually have to grab? Where would it be? It doesn't take any time at all. And whatever time it does take, it doesn't matter because this is what you have to do if you want to be able to resuscitate sick patients. This is the entry pass to resuscitating sick patients is you've already done this. And the problem I, I have is there's this vision that, you know, oh, that's fine at the busy level one trauma centers, but I'm in this podunk place. We don't see many sick patients. I don't need to go through all this. It's exactly the opposite. The person at the busy, aggressive quaternary referral center where crazy sick patients are coming is exposed enough to this day-to-day that they're probably not going to freeze. It's the person who sees a traumatic arrest once in a career at their center that is going to be having to do the mental work to keep themselves in the mind of what they would actually do. Let's say that there is a new disease that nobody has seen before, and all of a sudden, sick patients are coming in with it. How would you build your EAD for this totally new situation? What is your mental process of how you know that, okay, here's the first steps I would have to figure out for this? An emergency action drill for us is about three seconds worth of action. So it's not going to be applicable to this patient because there's no, there's no specificity to it. It wouldn't matter that it was this new disease. It's just, I need to get the airway. I need to get breathing. I need to get circulation. All of the EADs revolve around those three things. The patient you described is not going to be any different. I'm probably not going to have to build in any new EADs. To extend your question to, I think, where you want to go, like when we first saw first wave COVID in New York, This was unheard of. There was nothing at all like the patients we were seeing. And the rest of you uh, outside of New York, if you weren't in Italy and you weren't in China, you have no idea what we're talking about. So don't think your experience with COVID is what we saw in New York because you were seeing second wave, third wave COVID, whole different disease. We were seeing 30-year-olds dying within two hours from intractable respiratory failure combined with horrible circulatory collapse. We've never seen anything like it in the time courses that we experienced. That's not an emergency action drill. That's what the F do we do? And at first you struggle with just working with the medicine you already know. And then you get more information. You start trying other things out because there's no literature to support what the hell you're doing. And some things work and then you start gravitating towards them, even though they might not be right. That's just the nature of the beast. So to extend that to what you're asking, Rob, if some new disease came in, we do what we do now. And then hopefully through treating it, we'd start making associations with what seems to work and what doesn't. And we'd go from there. And it doesn't even mean those things are right. When things are studied, even with what seems like great anecdotal experience, some of them turn out to be wrong. That's all you could do in these new scenarios. You had mentioned before that if you are winding up in the gray here, that could also be a rebuke of your hospitals or your department's systems and running resuscitations. What did you mean by that? And how do you 
course correct if that is the situation. What happens typically in even very good centers is you have something that's slightly askew. The just-in-time patient's a perfect example. And then what you need to get back on your feet to get your bearings to be able to get out of the gray is for things to start working the way they're supposed to work. But what happens quite commonly is that clusterfuck ensues. And so you're like, I, I just need an IO. And they open up the IO and there's no needle there. And now what's that going to do to your gray zone? Like you're already in, maybe you were bordering towards gray. And now the thing you're like, oh, I finally hit on something. They can't get IV access. I'm going to put the IO in. There's no IO needles. Now you're really pushing towards the black. Same thing. You want to intubate the patient. All right, we need meds. And it's like a new nurse and they can't get the meds out of the machine. It's, I don't know, the PIX isn't working and you're moving too much and the jaw's clenched. What the hell am I going to do now? Guess what? You're not getting out of that gray. You're going deeper. Same thing. The patient rolls in, no warning, being bagged by EMS. And you're like, I got to intubate them. And now you realize, oh, there's no suction setups in the recess room. I got to go to another room and get one. There's no intubation equipment set up. So now I got to, while I'm trying to bag the patient, have to go set up all the intubation boxes well. So now what, what are you going to do here? It doesn't even work. You don't have enough hands. All of that is a lack of resource readiness. And yeah, it comes to the fore when you have these just-in-time patients, but you could have observed it in a hundred resuscitations before that and fixed it, but you chose not to. And that's what I mean about, yeah, just in time, maybe a more difficult cognitively, but it's really a marker of a bigger problem. Your ED needs to be resus ready. And you could just go down the line of each of these streams of immediate stabilization and figure out if you are. So if every time you're intubating, it's like you're reinventing the wheel, and you let that continue, then that failure mode's on you, not on your hospital, though they should have fixed it, and not on the patient for not giving you warning. It's on you. If you realize every single intubation, you're setting up hundreds of pieces of equipment, that's a failure. You should have said to yourself, well, we don't see intubations very often, which means people are not going to be very experienced with it. And when I need their help to set things up, they're not going to be there. So you come in at the beginning of the shift, and you go to your recess room and you set up a suction fully. You make sure it's there yourself. You get the thing, you put all the little caps on top so it actually sucks and you hook up the tubes to the right side because if you hook them up wrong, then it, it sucks one time and then as soon as it gets wet, it stops sucking. And then you put the Yankower together with the tubing already and you put the Yankower back in its package and you tuck it in and you turn the top things on the suction canister so that the Yankower is locked there. And now you know, I have one suction, good to go. Then you do another one. Then you take a BVM and you take it out of its package. You expand it. You put the mask on. You go find the one peep valve in your ED and you put it on the BVM and you hook it up to auction and you put it back in the bag and you hang that bag with the BVM in it on the auction flow meter in your recess room. You've just now taken out four minutes of prep for when you have a sick patient. It's already done. All right. Then you say to yourself, where is all my intubation equipment? And if you're in one of those places where it's a industry standard tackle box, the whole hospital uses them, then you have an excellent chance the equipment's going to be there. If on the other hand, it's randomly stocked by a clinical assistant in your department, a very good chance that what you need is not going to be there. So that means you set up, you grab a mayo stand, you grab everything you need for an intubation, you stick it on the mayo stand, and you put another chuck on top of it, and you write, do not touch. And now you know, I have my suction, I have my BVM, I have my intubation equipment already ready for me if a patient came in. Now, 
You could take a step further down this road of resource readiness. Maybe you buy a bag for intubation. That actually allows you to have everything set up. I happen to have made one, so I have an ulterior motive for mentioning this. And all of a sudden, you could have everything for the intubation there ready to go. If I have to intubate a patient, I'm just going to open my bag. I don't need to do anything. Everything's set up except for the BVM and the suction. Okay, that's a further step on. You want to take a step further down this road. You say to yourself, why the hell am I doing this? Let me go to my clinical director and say, we need to be ready to intubate a patient at any moment without warning. Can we have all of this stuff ready for us by the people in the department rather than me? That's the pathway you walk down on intubation. This is the mental process that should precede any just-in-time patient. Because yes, it's going to have effects on the just-in-time patient, but it's going to have effects on every patient, even if you had a warning, three minutes till a respiratory arrest comes in. Okay, great. You can use those three minutes setting up in a failed system, or you can have everything already ready and use those three minutes to pre-brief your team to do the cognitive realignment such that you're in a completely calm state when that patient rolls in. Or go to the bathroom before the patient arrives so you don't have to pee the entire resuscitation. This is what happens when you have a resus-ready shop. Let's say someone is listening to this and want to develop a culture of recess readiness in their shop where it is not, which, I, which is a lot of places. Most places I've worked do not have a culture of recess readiness. How do you build that culture? There's a progression, and I gave you the progression in intubation. First progression is you gain the mindset. You've, you've taken the red pill such that you realize, I can't just let things happen. I have to take ownership. So then it becomes that you, as a resus doc, stop talking strategy and start talking logistics. That's step one. So how do I make this happen so that I am resus ready when the patient rolls in? That's level one. Like level two is self-reliant. What could I do to make up for the chaos of the system to never have to be in a situation where everything I need is not immediately at my fingertips? And you make that happen. It's self-reliance. Is it ideal? Is it how healthcare should be? No, but it gets the job done. It means when you are there, that patient is getting a much higher level of resuscitation than they ever would when you are not. Then level three is you start saying, to someone who is a champion in your department. You got to find the person, whether it's from the nurse leadership or the doc leadership. Hey, I want to improve the care of every patient, even when I'm not here. I got these ideas of how we could do that. Are you on board? And if they say yes, now you have two champions. You have a physician champion, you, and hopefully if it's from the nursing leadership, then you're really in great shape. If it's another doc, fine. You're not going to make this win unless you get someone from the nursing leadership. So you have to keep shopping around to find someone who's a like mindset. Once you have someone from the doc side and the nurse side, you're really, you're cooking with gas now. And then you got to go to the administration and say, hey, I got a no cost strategy to make patient care better. And they love that. They salivate over that. I just want to have the recess room really set up for resuscitation such that if a patient dropped in super sick, we could start the resuscitation right away. Now, where's the objections going to be? There shouldn't be any. There's some dumb ones, like Joint Commission says you can't have suction set up ahead of time. They actually said this. You can't have suction set up ahead of time. This is their idea of patient safety. So you got to get around that stuff. I'm not to say on this podcast how you do that. But the point is, we need suction set up, ready for the patient. And you got to make that happen. Okay. You know, you start selling this. If you could show change, then people like it. Because now we're making patient care better. Someone's getting a pat on the back. It could be you. It could be your boss. If you're smart, you let it be the boss because then they're happy with you. Then maybe you start doing a few things that cost a little bit of money, but you don't do that at first. You could do this on the cheap. Just what we just said, making sure there's an IO 
with needles in every recess room, having the BVMs and suctions already set up and finding a way to get intubation meds to the bedside in less than 60 seconds. These are really low hanging fruit to make resuscitation enormously better. Wrapping it up, Scotty, thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, and of course, your candor. (laughs) It doesn't come any other way. Rob, it's been a great pleasure. Always love to talk to you. It's great to be back on Stimulus and I hope to be back again. You hate that sound. I hate that sound. Why are you hearing that sound? You're hearing that sound because you are a unpaid listener to MCRIT, and yet this is one of those episodes where only the team members, the MCRIT members, get the full episode, which means you're missing out on tons of resuscitative goodness. You're missing out on the optimal way to care for your super sick patients. And it's sad because just going to mcrit.org slash join would allow you to get full access, to get access to the rack literature reviews, full episodes, uh, extra goodies, bonus stuff, for an incredibly inexpensive price. Your department will pay for it, or you could write it off on your taxes. Uh, You could get it done before the end of the year and become a full MCRIT member. Just go on over to mcrit.org slash join, and you will now be someone exposed to all of the information to take care of your super sick patients that you want. You'll get this full episode and be able to actually perform a retrograde intubation. You'll be happy. So just go on over to mcrit.org slash join and never hear this message again.